Oh, it's good. It's good to be back. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Dave and I have the privilege of being part of this magnificent team here at Hills um, and what God is doing here. I've just come back from three weeks of holidays and thank you for allowing us to do that. It's been really fantastic. We've been in the sun and we've done not much and, uh, and it's been great. Um, so appreciate that. God's good. He's so good. And I'm feeling refreshed. Um, and to say that I'm excited to get up and preach is probably an understatement because I've, I'm eager and ready to go. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, God's good. Um, why don't we stand to our feet? And let's just, let's just bring this before the Lord this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to come into your presence. Thank you that we get to join with all the hosts of heaven, as Beck was saying, and we get to declare, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forever. This is why we exist. This is why we're here. To give you the glory, the honour, and the praise that is due your name. To worship you in spirit and in truth. And so, Father, would you take our lives... Would you take this church afresh? Would you take every thought, every moment? Would you just make it obedient to you? Lord, we just bring it before you now. We surrender it all to you. Take this word. Pierce our souls. Do a mighty work in our lives. And I just pray for a refreshing spirit this morning. I pray for those who are feeling weary and heavy laden, that they would feel refreshed. I pray that those who are feeling like they're wandering a bit from left to right and feel like they've lost their vision, they've lost their focus, they've lost, yeah, that point of direction, God. I pray today that this would be a moment where your spirit comes and just realigns us with your will. So we surrender this to you now in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said... And before you take a seat, take 28 seconds and say hello to someone in your general vicinity and welcome them to church. All right, fantastic. Marcus, can I borrow you for a second? Let's give Marcus a round of applause. We can do better than that. It's not a library. Come on. There we go. 
you want to set up, you can just set up over there. Just hold that. So, um, so last week, Marcus and I were uh, involved in a U12 retreat here. I think it's a great privilege that we get to use this space, right? The school blesses us so much, and we have this incredible opportunity every day to invest back into the life of this school community and invest in young people from age four all the way through to 18. Um, and so when they say, can I come and participate for three days in a year 12 retreat, I'm like, yes, amen, I will do that. And we've had, we had an amazing time and God did some great stuff in some young people's lives. But one of the things we did was we played archery tag. And archery tag, Mark, so can you just lift up that arrow? You'll see it's a, it's a decent sort of a bow, but it's got this arrow with a bit of a foam tip. And fundamentally, archery tag is a very simple game. You split into two teams, and the chief goal is simply to hit the other team's target out before they hit yours, right? There's these five little white dots, and what you've got to do, Marcus, you can just give us a quick demonstration. Hopefully he actually hits it. It doesn't hit the uh, speakers. You are very safe. <laughs> you are very safe. Just like that. Thank you, Marcus. And so the goal is, basically, each team is one of these, and the first team to knock the five, I'm going to call them things, out of the opposition's target wins, right? So it's really simple. There's basically two things you've got to do. The first thing is actually attack your opponent's target, and the second thing you have to do is actually defend your own target. Because if you all just go and attack, well, then there's no one left to defend. So you've got to defend and you've got to attack. It's a really simple activity. Are you with me? But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Because in the middle of that objective where you're trying to just do this one clear thing, there's a battle that rages all around. And it's very easy as you are trying to, you start with this idea that we're going to hit this target it's very easy to be distracted by the battle that's going around because before you know it, there's someone hiding over there, you know, sniping you, trying to hit you. And if you get hit, you have to leave the game, you have to perform a challenge, make someone laugh, do something silly, and then you can re-enter the game. And that time out is precious. So you're constantly trying to defend yourself against this and you're trying to adapt to that and you're trying to you know, navigate this different challenge and it's easy, it can be easy to actually forget why, what it is that you actually started the game trying to achieve. And in the first uh, game that we ran, this hilarious thing happened because I'm not going to say that Marcus was the captain of this team, but he was. <laughs> so there's two teams and Marcus's team was going against Aaron Morris's team and uh, it started off really well. They both had their strategies. They both had their plans. They were going to have some defenders and they were going to attack. And Marcus's team was doing really well for about the first 10 minutes. And then as I was sitting there sort of umpiring this thing, I noticed that Marcus's team just got completely distracted by everything else that was going on around them. And they're all like running around. They got in these individual duels. Like they're all faced, they're in this little battle with another person. They're all running around. And they literally completely forgot the objective of the game. And as I'm looking at it, the next thing you see is Mrs. Karat, one of the teachers. She's literally standing about this far from their target. She had about five arrows lined up next to her feet. And she had not a single person trying to hit her. And there she was. They're all running around, shooting at each other, laughing like this full-on intense game. And there she is. She's just going, boom, pick up the next one, boom. 
pick up the, it probably took her 10 minutes, but she finally got there. <laughs> and then she's just like, woo, we win. <laughs> and so then we brought the team together and we talked about the importance of actually having a mission and knowing what it is that you're trying to achieve. And I said to the guys, what you've done is you've experienced missional drift. <laughs> missional drift. And it's actually a term that we use in organisations. It's a term that we use in churches. It's a term that we use in schools. It's actually a term that you can use in families and marriages, relationships. Missional drift, where you set out with a clear objective. But because of the battle that rages around you, you find yourself, not intentionally, no one intentionally goes, I'm going to stop aiming for that and start aiming for them. But we get sucked into it. And particularly after a year like the year we've just had, where that battle's been reasonably fierce, it's very easy to drift. Which is why today's days like today are super important. Because what we're going to do today is we're going to come back and remind ourselves of our mission and remind ourselves of why we do what we do. Remind ourselves of the target and the call that God has given this house and what we are supposed to be doing. Because it's very easy to chase after all these different things, but what is it exactly that we are called to do. And the way we're going to do that is by looking at this fabulous story in 1 Kings chapter 18. And this is a story that I've, I've preached on a few times, but every single time the Lord just leads me back to it and I'm like, man, I just can't plumb the depths of this thing. Like there's so much, so much in this. Every time I read it, I feel like God shows something New. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's go there right now. 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the story of a prophet, Elijah. Everyone say Elijah. And it's a famous tale of what happens on a mountain called Carmel. And in a bit of context leading up to this is that Elijah uh, has been called by God to be a prophet. And so he's called by God to proclaim the word of God in a season where this guy called Ahab is king of Israel. And Ahab is not a very good king and he's not a very good man. And he has led Israel into idolatry. He's led Israel into adultery. He's led Israel into all kinds of depravity and evil, completely away from the call that God had given Israel as a nation. And so God calls Elijah and Elijah comes before Ahab, and he declares that it's not going to rain for three years on the land. And so he just speaks this word, it's not going to rain, it's going to dry up. And then Elijah disappears. And so if you're a nation that is relying on agriculture to survive, three years of no rain is not a very good thing. And so King Ahab and all of his leadership team are looking for Elijah. Because they're trying to figure out where he is. And Elijah's sort of just been hiding uh, with a widow in Zarephath. And God's been feeding him with ravens. And just amazing, this incredible story. But in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, 
Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And then there's this interesting interaction with a guy called Obadiah, who is a member of Ahab's council, and he's a good man. He's a godly man, protecting the prophets and the priests from Ahab's wife Jezebel, who's slaughtering them. Read the story. But eventually we get to a point where Elijah says to Obadiah, tell Ahab to come and meet me on Mount Carmel and we're going to have a stoush and we're going to see, we're going to, we're going to remind ourselves of who, our, of who God is, right? So he calls them there, they meet up on Mount Carmel and they bring the prophets of Baal and as the prophets come, uh, they all are uh, doing their various sacrifices and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out and they're saying, Elijah says to the people, he says, whoever, whoever answers by fire is God. So they set up, you know, the prophets of Baal set up their sacrifice and Elijah sort of sits there and taunts them and they're, they're chanting and they're dancing and they're doing all their stuff and the fire doesn't come. And then Elijah starts like truly mocking them and he's like, well, maybe Baal's on the toilet. It's, it's quite funny, actually. But nothing comes, nothing comes, nothing comes. There is no answer from the prophets of Baal. And then we get to verse 36 and we're going to read from verse 36 to 45. Because it's Elijah's turn. And what he's done is he's set up his sacrifice and he's poured water all over the sacrifice over and over and over again. And from verse 36, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There was nothing there. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he tucked his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. It's a crazy story, and if some of you have decided to be a note-taker with your New Year's resolution this year, you might like to get out your pen and put the title of this message, and if you're not a note-taker, well, then you can just announce this title to your neighbour but I'm going to preach on the topic this morning of before the rain. Before the rain. I think when we think about 
this idea of reign, this idea of the latter rain, this idea of what it is that we're called to as a church, what is the vision of this church, what do we want to see? I don't know about you, but I want to see the reign of God come on the earth. It's this sense of refreshing, it's this sense of renewal, it's this sense of a washing away of what is impure and what is uh, leading to depravity and destruction. It's this, this move of God that we see. And I want to see the rain. I want to see the rain in my life. I want to see the rain in this church. I want to see the rain in this nation. When there's a dry and barren land, we want to see the rain of God come. And Israel needed rain. It was dry. There was no life in that place. They needed the rain from heaven. They needed God to rain down. But before the rain can come, there's some things that need to happen. And as a church, we have this vision to see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed. That is our vision. That is the thing that we're trying to see. For us, that's what the rain looks like. When the rain comes, it's that we'll see Jesus glorified, we'll see lives transformed and we'll see hope revealed all around this place. Because actually when hope is revealed, when the truth of God is proclaimed, then lives are transformed by the power of the word of God. And when lives are transformed, it's not because of us, it's because of him, so he gets the glory. And so this is the vision of this church. This is exactly why we exist. This is what we set out to achieve, to see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed. That's the reign that we're praying for. But the question is, how does that happen? How do we see that happen? And so the means through which we seek to see this happen is what we call our mission. Everyone say mission. And we're like, how do, how do we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed? And quite simply, the mission that we have is this. When we look at scripture and we look at what God has done and the way that God has worked, it's simply just to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. Because God wants to work through his church. He wants to see these people rise up and actually become passionate disciples. A disciple is someone who makes a disciple. A disciple is someone who follows God, who loves God, who loves people, who's engaged in the world. A disciple is not someone who just attends a church service occasionally. No, a disciple is someone who's pursuing Christ, following Christ, being an apprentice of Jesus, looking at the life of Jesus and saying, I want to be like that. And as we, we start to follow him and we're filled with his spirit, then we will see transformation and change and we won't just see it in our lives. We'll actually have an impact on that person. God will use us as a vessel through which he'll bring transformation and change in another person's life. And that will change families and that will change generations. And we see the reign of God come on the earth. So we see our mission is to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? If the rain comes through passionate disciples, the Spirit of God moving, how do we make passionate disciples? And this is where we see something fascinating in this story because we see some key things that arise before the rain. And God started speaking to me about this uh, a few months ago when we were at a house in Lobethal uh, a bunch of lads came with their chainsaws. This house in Lobethal had been burnt down and we, they needed some help. And I stood there with the owner of that land and it was just like covered in weeds, right? Just weeds everywhere. 
And he started talking about when the fire came through and flattened the house, he stood in that same position, but instead of it being green, it was just black. And he said to me, the first thing that he thought was not, oh dear, what am I going to do? He said, the first thing that came to his mind was, well, at least I don't have to do the weeding this year. And there we were, weeds everywhere. I was like, why did this happen? He goes, well, COVID, we couldn't get in here. You know, everyone's doing their own thing. We couldn't get any help. And now look at it. It's a mess. And we just went to work weeding and chainsawing and all that stuff. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about, isn't it funny how God, God will send his fire and he'll renew things. Like he'll, he'll burn away stuff. He'll strip us back. But then actually we have to cultivate the work of God. If we just forsake it, it just gets overgrown. We've got to actually participate in the work that God's doing and cultivate the renewing fire of God. And so I felt like God was saying, hey, I want to use you. I want to work through you. I want to do something in you. It's not you who's doing it. I'm doing it, but I'm calling you to participate in this work that I'm doing. And I was like, all right. And we went to 1 Kings chapter 18. I want to show you a few things before the rain. How do we, how do we make disciples? How do we, how do we see passionate disciples form that we might see the reign of God, that we might see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed? How do we make sure that we're not having missional drift? How do we make sure that we're not just chasing after that and chasing after that and chasing after that and look back and think, oh, jeepers, someone's, we've lost sight of what it is that we set out to achieve. How do we do this? Well, the first thing, if we go to 1 Kings 18, we actually go all the way back to verse 30. I want to show you something. We see the power of relationship. Because Elijah is here, and in verse 30 it says, And Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. Come here to me. Elijah is annoyed, right? Elijah has been the prophet of the people of Israel and they've done anything but listen to him. They've run away. They've forsaken the ways of God. He's got every reason to just give up on them and say, I'm done with you. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't just sit there and say, no, it's stuffy. He says, no, come to me. Come listen to what I'm talking. Elijah here is this, is kind of a prophetic vision of Christ in a way. A foreshadowing of, of Jesus who would also come and say what? Come to me. He doesn't sit there and just say, nah, I'm done with you. You've disobeyed. You've done the wrong thing. You don't belong in. He says, come. Just come. There's an invitation to come. Come and see. Come and see what God's about to do. And the church is supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to be a people who are saying, come to me. We're not supposed to be a people who close the doors and say, well, unless you fit the right mold, you don't belong. No, come to me. Relationship. Like, let's be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah? Like, let's speak the language, but not eat the fruit. We talk about being a church that presents a countercultural message in a culturally relevant way. So that someone can walk in those doors and they're like, oh, I, I, like, I get you. You're my kind of people. You've got to have that relationship. Come to me. Come to me. And so I love that idea. And so in our church... This idea of relationship, we love to use the word belong, and you'll see it here. Belonging. Belonging is key. And that comes first. 
The invitation to come to Elijah comes first. Elijah doesn't say repent first. Elijah doesn't say now start behaving and then you can come over here. No, he just says come to me. Come here. Jesus does the exact same thing. He says come to me. Come to me. In the church we're supposed to say come. Come. You are welcome. You belong. You are welcome. Relationship is key. The second thing we see before the rain is restoration. Again, verse 30, verse 31. After inviting the people, it says, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come. Your name shall be Israel. Sorry, before that he said, come to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. There has to be a restoration of true and proper worship. What Elijah does is he calls Israel back to true and proper worship. What the prophets of Baal had been doing was false worship, was idolatry. They were engaging in pagan practices, we'll say. They were worshipping on every high place with pagan prostitutes. Like they were doing everything against what the Lord had called them to do. But Elijah calls them back to true and proper worship. He restores the altar of the Lord. And I think when we look around our world today, there's some stuff that we've got very, very wrong. There's some stuff that we've prioritised that is very, very wrong. And we need to actually come back to that place of true and proper worship. That place of acknowledging that it's about Christ, it's not about us. That place where we go, it's not about building a big community. No, it's about passionately pursuing Jesus with everything that we have. It's about preaching truth and preaching God's word and not watering it down for a culturally seeker sensitive message. That won't achieve anything. It will just be just like the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. No, we've got to come back to the altar of the Lord and declare God's word unashamedly in small groups and from this pulpit, from a church plant, a restoration of true and proper worship comes. And then watch this, before the rain, we have relationship, we've got restoration of true and proper worship. And the third thing we see is there has to be a revelation of God. Because after Elijah restores the altar, and then he makes it more difficult for himself, he then prays. And then in verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. Why? Why did they do that? Because they saw God. They had a revelation of God. How did they know it was God? Because all through Scripture, how does God appear to his people? In fire. He appears to Abraham as a smoking pot. He appears to Abraham as fire. He appears to Israel as fire. He appears to Moses as fire. Fire, over and over and over again, God leads his people, he reveals his presence to his people in the presence of fire. And so Israel, when they see the fire of God fall, it's not just a random miracle. They're like, the Lord, he is God. They're reminded, they have a revelation of who he is. It's a powerful thing that God does through Elijah here. And here's the interesting thing. 
is in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, what do we see the church filled with? Fire, tongues of fire come upon the church. Guess what? The church is supposed to be the vessel through which God reveals his presence to the world. This is why God sent his spirit. Christ is the fullness of God revealed to humanity, to all of eternity. Christ is God incarnate. Christ is the revelation of God that he establishes his church. He says, now you go and reveal me to them. I've given you fire that you might be that revelation. We are supposed to, again, be like an Elijah here, standing before the world and calling them and saying, here is God, here is Christ, see who he is, he's glorious. But instead, what we find ourselves doing is because we're not walking in true and proper worship. It's actually we're much more like Israel who are standing back there and we've forgotten who God is. And we need that revelation afresh of who is this Christ. And when the church catches that revelation afresh, and when we see the fire of God fall upon the church, the rain's not far off, friends. I don't know about you, but I want to see that rain. And I want to see the church full of fire and full of faith, hungering after God more than anything else. Because with that revelation comes something significant. It comes repentance. It said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And they fell prostrate before him. Why do they fall prostrate? Because it's an act of repentance. It's an act of, oh my goodness, what have we been doing? Why have we been doing this? Why have we been chasing after this false God? It's just self-worship. What are we doing? And that's what repentance is. It's just a recognition that this life I'm pursuing is nonsense. And it's a turning. It's a 180 degree turning in a different direction and chasing after the things of God. It's fixing our eyes on the target. It's coming back to the mission. It's coming back to the reason for living. And when we have a revelation, a revelation always leads to a repentant spirit. Always, because how can we not repent in the presence of a holy God? Even if we think we're going awesome, I promise you, you're not as awesome as God. Trust me, none of us are. When we see God in his glory, we're like, oh, goodness me. We can't help, we've got to repent. We've got to turn and say, God, I need you. Like Israel, we so often want to turn and say, God, Draw me back to that first love. And when we start walking in repentance, something happens. The fifth thing, renewal. Because after this, verse 40, Elijah commanded, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. So they seized them and they brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. The prophets of Baal speak to everything that was turning Israel away from God. It speaks to all the stuff in our lives, all the junk in our life, all the mess in our lives that God wants to just purge out of us. And in that revelation of who he is and with repentance, spirit actually comes renewal, actually comes a sanctifying work of the spirit. We'll never be perfect until the day he calls us home, but we should be looking more like Christ each new day. 
when the Spirit of God is at work in us, we've got to see something at 10, 15 of a young man who 12 months ago was anything but walking with Christ. If you look at his life now compared to what it was, you're like, man, something's different. Why? Because the Spirit of God has brought renewal in his life. And we need to be walking in that renewal constantly, asking God to bring that change and transformation. Because when the church starts walking in renewal with that repentant heart, catching a revelation of who he is and welcoming people into that space, oh, the rain's not far off. Which brings us to the last thing that I want you to see. And this is simply reliance. Before the rain, the church has to start to rely on God. Watch this, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is a sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Where's the rest of Israel? Where's everyone else gone? They've had this amazing encounter with God. Oh, God spoke to me. How amazing was that? And then they've all just run back to their life. Elijah's different. What does Elijah do? He goes to the secret place. He goes to the top of Mount Carmel and he gets on his, puts his head between his knees and he prays. He's like, God, I can't bring the rain. And God, we need it. So send it. Send it. Send the rain. But then watch something else. He sends his servant. He says, go and look. And what does the servant do? He goes and looks and then he comes back and he says, there's nothing there, mate. And Elijah's praying, he's like, go again. The servant runs off, has a look, comes back, still nothing there. He's like, go again. He's like, off I go. But there's this persistent pursuit of God's work, this, this hanging on a knife edge of God. I know you've got to move a desire to this hunger for God to move and bring change and transformation. And it says on the seventh time, Seven, the, the, the number of completion, the number of perfection, the number of God's timing. He's saying, in my timing, your job is just to keep praying, keep pursuing me, keep being on the earth. Where are, yeah, I'm coming back. Yeah, all right, God, I'll go again. That's still on there, I'll come back. Yeah, I'm going again. But this is what we're called to do, to be waiting on God, relying on God, pleading with God to move in this generation, to send the rain. And on the seventh time, in God's timing, when he's ready and when we're ready because we've been relying on him, we've been maintaining that posture of just needing him more than anything else, and all of a sudden a cloud as small as a man's hand appears in the sky. And that's all Elijah needs. Because as soon as the cloud appears, he's like, oh, get ready, get ready, get ready. The rain's coming. We need to learn to rely on God. We need to learn to wait on God. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, but at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I wonder if there's some people in this room who last year you felt like you almost gave up. The word of the Lord is keep going. Don't give up. Don't stop at four. Don't stop at five. Don't stop at six because the world says, what are you doing? Why do you keep trying? Why do you keep coming back? No, no, no. You keep going to seven. Keep going 
to 7. Hebrews 10, 36, For you have need of patience, that having done the will of God, you might inherit the promise. What is the promise? The promise of God was that he would send rain on the earth. The rain's coming. The rain's coming. Oh, I'm excited about what God's doing in 2021. And I pray that you are too. But before the rain, is a call to his people to seek that relationship. To come back to that true and proper worship. That we might have a revelation of who he is. Live that repentant lifestyle. We call that believing in this church. That we might then see in belonging and believing we might see that renewal Becoming, day by day, being transformed. And then relying on God, waiting on God, pursuing the things of God, seeing the kingdom be built, jumping in, investing. To rest in Christ, which says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. It's interesting because he says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a means of work. Isn't that interesting? He actually calls us to participate, and it's in participating in the work of the kingdom that we find rest. That's another message, which we'll get to another time. Isn't, the, isn't God good? He's a good God. He's a great God. And He's got great things in store for you, for your family. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I feel like 2021 is a year of preparation. I feel like God said 2021 is that year of cultivating and participating in the work of God. Because the rain's coming. Let's stand to our feet. <laughs> Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is alive and active. And we thank you that a story from thousands of years ago is not just a story of what once happened, it's a story of what always happens. It's a promise of a God who is actively pursuing his people, who never gives up on his people. But when Christ has revealed himself to humanity and in his spirit, by his spirit, has established his church to see the rain come once and for all. So, Father, we stand and we plead and we beg and we, we ask, Lord, for renewal in this place, for renewal in our own lives, Lord, but for renewal for the hills. Renewal for this city, renewal for this nation. That a nation that was once strongly and proudly Christian, a nation that now has less than 8% of people attend church on any given Sunday, that we would see everything change. Everything change. That we would indeed see the hope of the gospel revealed 
all throughout the land. And as the hope of the gospel is revealed, that we would see lives transformed. Many lives, lives that we've been praying for for years and years and years, that this year we would see transformation. Jesus' name. This year, as we plead for these people, that we would see transformation. This year, maybe we stop praying. God, put it on our hearts to come back to the prayer room, to get on our knees and pray that we that there would be transformation, that you would open the eyes of the lost and the broken. That you might be glorified, not us. We're nothing more than jars of clay and that's all we'll ever be, but my goodness me, you've given us a mighty treasury, this glorious country. And we can't wait to put every crown in your feet and declare, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, was and is and is to come. Come, Lord Jesus, send the rain, we pray. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.